0: I am often accused of being wishy washy and never coming to the point. So, in order to give you the point, and because this is my last Easter sermon with you, here is the meaning of the resurrection as far as I see it God has the last laugh. That doesn't mean that all of life is laughter. In fact, Maundy, Thursday, and Good Friday remind us that it is also full of tragedy. But in the end, the meaning of the resurrection is that God has the last laugh and that God will dance as God still dances with us. Now, this laughter stuff, of course, is the point of Easter. And in the old days, in the ancient days, hundreds of years ago, they used to have a tradition called Rhesus Pascalis, Easter laughter, where the priest would tell jokes to the congregation and they would laugh around the Easter time. So here is our Easter tradition, Rhesus Pascalis joke. Jesus is resurrected and he, first thing he wants to do is to go dancing And so he finds his way to a disco and he gets out on the floor, but he's not doing very well. And so he shouts out, help, I've risen and I can't get down. (laughs) Get down, get down. (laughs) This morning's Text comes to us from the Gospel of Mark. It was the first gospel written, and hence this will be the first resurrection story written. Many years, I don't know, eight, ten years before Matthew or Luke, and twenty or so years before John. And it has a strange twist to it because the ending is not really an ending to this gospel. If you look at your Bibles, if you're reading along, gospel, original gospel ended at verse 8, and then uh priest, a hundred years later or so, added the rest of the gospel because he didn't like the, the ending. And, and you're, you will find out why he didn't like it as I read this to you. Beginning in the first verse of the 16th chapter. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side And they were alarmed But he said to them Do not be alarmed You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth Who was crucified He has been raised He is not here Look There is the place they laid him Now Go and tell his disciples And Peter That he is going ahead of you to Galilee And there you will see him Just as he told you So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. End of gospel, end of story. This is the word of the Lord. It's completely unresolved. Nothing is settled. Nothing is closed. Matthew at least has the women leaving the tomb and running to tell the disciples and bumping into Jesus along the way and falling at his feet to worship him. They had that resolution of encounter. Luke at least has the women running to the disciples who are huddled in the upper room, scared out of their wits to tell them the story that the tomb was empty and as they tell it, the disciples say, oh, you're just gossiping. It's an idle tale. Nobody understood it until later when Jesus revealed himself to them along the way in the upper room and on the way to Emmaus. Those are the way, that's the way that Luke and, and Matthew, resol- John resolves it by Mary going to the tomb alone in John's story. And she finds the tomb open. She runs back to tell the disciples, Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved, raced to the tomb to find out what's going on, looking in, and then they race back to the disciples, leaving Mary standing outside pretty scared. And she looks up and sees this figure in the garden, and she thinks that it is the gardener, but it is in fact Jesus, and she doesn't know that until Jesus calls her name the same way he had called it so many times through his own personhood, Mary, Mary. And then she got it. It, It's Jesus. All three of those Gospels have resolution, but Mark just, I mean, it's not even a period. It's more like a question mark. Even better, it's more like, and they were afraid, dot, dot, dot. We love mysteries, of course, because we get to see the process and finally the resolution about who did it or what the question, answer was. We love them because we live in this storied world. We, we live with the beginning and the middle and the end and in the parts of that there's character development and there's crisis and small resolutions and, and ways that point to the ending. But this beginning, middle, end story is the way that we understand life. We're a storied people and because we're a storied people, it is through story that we find meaning This is where we make meaning of our lives, through our stories. But with no closure? How do you bring meaning to that? It would be like in the eighth year of the Game of Thrones at the end of the season, neither family gets the throne. And you are left, having, I've never seen one episode, by the way. (laughs) I'm just making this up. And you, who watch it, are left completely unresolved. How well is that going to fly? This is, of course, Mark's point. The women were seized. It says terrified, but I think really the word is, they, they trembled. Reminds me of that gospel song, tremble, tremble, God. They were trembling there because of the possibility that this in fact might be true. They were seized. They were stuck. They were stopped. They were frozen. They didn't know what to do. They were terrified and they were full of awe and wonder at this possibility They had no words to share, neither did Mark. All words, to make sense of this, are awkward, not enough, insufficient. They didn't say anything to anyone, for they were afraid. Now what? They had to bring meaning to it, just as we do, which is why Mark leaves it unanswered. Mark wants us, I think, like those women at the tomb, to pause. If not to be terrified, at least to stop. And ask the question, what does this mean? What does this mean? Mark leaves it open for us because Mark wants us to bring the meaning to it because it means nothing to us unless we're the ones who give it that meaning. On the front of your bulletins is the iconic picture of the destruction of the Cathedral of Notre Dame and the, or Dame and the, and the cross hanging from it. And we picked it, or I picked it, because uh, it's now such a controversy online that there are the usual fundamentalist sides battling... Out what it means and the fundamentalist rational scientists are saying it doesn't mean anything it's just what was left over after the fire at the cathedral and the fundamentalist religious people says it means this that it was a miracle by God to save the cross and to let it shine forth in the darkness of that destruction with the ray of light landing down on top of it and, and I want to say, you know, you don't have to go to either extreme. You can instead say, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? And it means that the light of the cross of Christ shines forth amidst any darkness there is and all destruction. That's what it means to me. It's no miracle any more than it's just by accident. It's my meaning that I put onto it. The light of God's love shines forth on the cross no matter how dark. But you can choose what you want it to mean to you. The meaning of this for Mark is that it is such an expansive reality. I think it was Einstein who said, reality is just an illusion. This is Einstein, right? it a very precious one. So whatever reality, illusion we live by, we have to bring words to it and, and meaning to it for ourselves. For whatever you see in life design, is designed for our meaning making. And if we choose to look at life through the lens of faith and hope and love, we have a whole new understanding of what life is about. If we choose to look at life and tragedy and death through the lens of resurrection, we have a whole new understanding of what the meaning of life and death is about. And it's up to us how we choose to do it. The recent recent last 40 or 50 years of work with cognitive behavioral therapy, it's one of the most amazing things that we've learned is that we have this neuroplasticity in our brains, and the more that we habituate our brains and condition our brains in the way we think, the more we actually begin to experience that thinking. For instance, if you want to experience what it feels like to be grateful, then you do gratitude exercises. If you want to experience what it Feels like to be loving, then you do loving kindness exercises. And the more we do it, the more we actually experience in our bodies the reality of that. If you want to experience what it means to have hope in a world that does not have much of it, Mark gives us the story. And you can buy it or not. However, you do it, it's a mystery. It leaves open for us the resolution that we will live into. He goes before you, he says. That is future perfect tense. Always with us now, always before us. He goes before you wherever you go, and our going with that is where the meaning is found. Or we can choose something, we can choose sarcasm. In high school, I was probably the most sarcastic child that's ever walked the earth. It was a protection. I could bring laughter, but I had this hard shell of sarcasm. I didn't want anybody to get close. Thankfully, I grew out of that. It's still there somewhere, but I try to avoid it. We could go even deeper, or at least more brittle. We could become cynical. There is no hope. It's all darkness and despair. We could go deeper still. We could become nihilist. There's no meaning. Peter Reimer wrote a great New York Times editorial last week about the mystery of the cross and that the Times would publish it is in itself a miracle, but that it was so powerful. And I always like to read the comments that are sent in because online you can read all the comments. And one of the comments from this really sort of disturbingly cynical voice said, as to Weimer's article about the mystery of the cross, there is no mystery. We live in a completely random, completely unconscious multiverse that always was and always will be. There is no mystery. There is no meaning. Okay. If so. Mark's story calls that into question. The journey of life and the meaning of life is learning how to love and to hope and to serve others. And it is learning how to face death with courage, which is a strong heart. It's risky. It's risky. You're going to get hurt. You're going to be saddened. You're going to lose people. Your faith is going to bounce all over the place, but there is no journey more worth taking than this. It is the way you choose to frame your life and the world, it is a frame of faith and hope and love. The women risked everything, and they had their hearts broken. And then on the third day they went to the tomb and they were astounded. And they were astounded by the reality that the universal Christ now resurrected beyond space and beyond time and beyond religion and beyond race and beyond identity and beyond income and beyond every possible wall and barrier that we put in front of Him. This universal Christ is beyond all that to encompass and embrace all of creation. Tell me that doesn't reframe your understanding of the world. The power of the human spirit is enormous. One of the things this picture tells me is that when I see this and the destruction, two days later a billion dollars has already been promised to rebuild the cathedral. That's about the phoenix rising up out of the ashes and the power of the human spirit to bring new life in the midst of destruction. That in us is incredible. You saw it in Tiger Woods' when at the Masters who literally bottomed out two years ago having his mug shot taken for being addicted to painkillers bottomed out, didn't think he would even swing a golf club again, wins the Masters this year. It was an enormous witness to the power of the human spirit to come back out of destruction. I was also told, by the way, by an 830 church member to mention that the University of Virginia's win of basketball is (laughs) another example. Being that they lost to a 16th ranked team the year before and they win the national. So there it is, okay? I probably wouldn't have brought that up if it had been Carolina. (laughs) God raises up Jesus, though, you see. This isn't about Jesus' power of the human spirit, Jesus was dead. There was no pulse. There was no brain image. There was nothing going on. He had been dead for three days. As good and powerful as the human spirit, Jesus did not raise himself. God did. That's the story Mark wants to tell us. He did not raise himself. He was raised, Mark says. I was at a, I told some of you last, two weeks ago, you know, two weeks ago, I was at a retreat, a conference in Atlanta for, okay, you ready to smile? This will really make you happy. Uh, uh, an association for death education counselors. There were morticians and funeral home directors and hospice workers and physicians and, and caretakers and chaplains and anybody interested in learning more about death and dying life and living and bereavement and grieving was welcome to go, and there were 400 people from all over the world gathered there, and I learned more about the details of dying and grief than I ever thought possible, and I got to say that it was indeed deeply spiritual, especially when in the class, which was mostly didactic, one of the students in our class raised his hand and said, what do you think about near-death or after-death experiences? And the teacher said, wise enough, what do you think about them? (laughs) He said, I need to share that the reason I'm in this class is because I was brought up Jewish. My family went only to the high holy days. We never practiced. I, When I left home, got married, uh, my wife uh, is a Protestant, although she doesn't practice. I became basically an agnostic or maybe an atheist. Uh, The whole thing seemed like a bunch of tomfoolery to me. And then we had a son who was so severely broken, disabled, that they didn't think he would live a day. But he managed to live for five months, mostly through ICU care. But when it was clear that he wasn't going to continue his life, I was sitting with him, And I had my hand on his head and I was looking in his face. Of course, at this point, he breaks up. And what I saw there, he said, was his soul. For one instant, I looked into his face and saw his soul. I didn't even believe in souls. For whatever it was that I saw came to me and revealed to me his soul, and it changed my life. I am here 20 years later because I have quit my job, and I want to pursue this end-of-life phenomenon through the Internet somehow. Another person raised their hand. I actually died on the gurney, this person said. I was hovering above my body. And it's the typical story. The darkness first and then a bright light from a distance comes closer. And she's telling this. And, of course, she's weeping too. And and she's talking about this light that is so full of peace and joy and comfort she had never experienced before. And the closer it got, the more it took over her body. And as it got completely almost next to her, she began to notice the faces of her loved ones who had passed and they were telling her, we love you so much, but it is not your time, you must return, which she did. She came back into her body and the reason she was at the conference is because she has devoted her life to hospice care. Another person raised their. the whole class now wanted to talk. They finally found words to something they thought was too embarrassing to share. It was too mysterious. And in the middle of that class, there we are all dancing together to this illusion that's really the reality that breaks in on us if we choose to frame our world through the eyes of faith, hope, and love. It's our choice. The ultimate mystery of life is not that there is no meaning in it, but whether the meaning is ultimately tragic. And this story from Mark leaves it wide open for you and for me to decide.